Well, today Isaiah takes us into a topic of immense importance to the church, to you and to me. Today's passage forces us to consider the relationship between grace and obedience. And the problem that we share with that original audience is that if we're not careful, we can receive the grace of God in vain. Now, I know that that phrase sounds contradictory, right? How can one receive the grace of God in vain? Surely God's grace is lavish, it's lavish enough to compensate for my dullness of heart and lack of obedience to the Lord, right? Now, twice in the New Testament, Paul challenges the church in Corinth not to receive the grace of God in vain. Earlier in our service, Sally read these words from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, his grace towards me was not in vain. And in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, he writes, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. <clears throat> Ray Orland Jr., who I'm indebted to this morning, asks a great question. He asks, how can grace be received in vain? Isn't grace God's all-forgiving kindness to us? Doesn't God's grace compensate even for our half-hearted responses? Why then does Paul urge us not to receive the grace of God in vain? Because God's grace not only accepts us, it also transforms us. But if all we want out of God is acceptance without transformation, then we are receiving his grace in vain and our Christianity is worthless. Or as Jesus said, more succinctly, saltless salt. My friends, believing in vain and receiving the grace of God in vain are realities that hit us close to home. Are we not constantly in danger of obedienceless faith, of wanting God's acceptance but not his transformation? We want to, God to bless us while we chase our side hustles. But the more we chase, the more our lives are lived outside of God's will for us. And this is a dangerous place to be, as those ancient Israelites experienced. Today's sermon is titled, Let Us Not Receive the Grace of God in Vain. I couldn't come up with anything else, so that's what we're going with. The big idea here is that we're not just saved by grace, but we live every day by this very same grace. For God's grace is not only the power to save us, God's grace has the power to transform us. Now our text is kind of long, it's 30 verses, so I'm just going to start by reading the first section, the first seven verses, and it's called the Vineyard Song. In this song, Isaiah is singing of God's unbounded, lavish grace towards his people, but also how his people have received this grace in vain. And then through the rest of the chapter, Isaiah helps us to identify six ways that we resist God's grace and four ways in which God disciplines grace-resistant people. So we'll divide our time under two headings, God's abundant grace and then the fruit we bear. <clears throat> First, let's read Isaiah 5, verse 1 through 7. It's in your pew Bible. If you want to open that up, it's on page 569, Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, 
but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why does it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I'll do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word towards us. I have a feeling it's going to rebuke us, which is often a good work that you do for us. We pray that by your spirit, we would be softened to hear what you would like to speak to each of us as your word is alive and powerful. And we need your work in us. We don't want to leave here unchanged. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So the first point is God's abundant grace. And what we want to see is that from God's perspective, every human being bears fruit. The question is, What kind of fruit, good or bad, pleasant or stinking? Every year, our family, we get tomato plants. Uh, This year, we just got one plant. I wish we got more. You'll know why in a minute. Um, Leslie got it, I think, like Lowe's or Home Depot. You know, it was a little plant. We brought it home. We put it in this nice pot. We had really good soil there. We even used the miracle Grow fertilizer. We kept it in the sun, and I rotated it, you know, a quarter turn every few days, and and um, it grew and it grew. I was picking all the suckers like you know you're supposed to do. It was getting really, really big, but the problem was all summer long, no fruit. Finally, it's like first week in September, there's this puny little green and black tomato on it, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I, I went away and I came back, and um, at some point, Leslie had uprooted that plant thrown it into the woods for the deer to trample on it. When you take the time, the money, and energy to plant a tomato plant, in the end, what do you hope to see? Tomatoes. You want your plants to be fruitful. That is both God's desire and his expectation that his people bear fruit. In this first section of chapter 5, Isaiah sings of God's abundant grace towards his people who are personified how? As a vineyard that the Lord has lavished with everything they need for the, for the vineyard to provide great fruit. Isaiah says in verse 1, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. He's singing to God. And then he begins singing a beautiful love song to the Lord in verse 2. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. He didn't go to Home Depot to get his vines. These were really, really good vines. 
Most vineyards don't have a watchtower, but this one did, which means it's special. And there was even a huge permanent storage place for all the wine that was produced there. Most vineyards don't have that. How does Isaiah's song continue? The song goes on, and he looked for it to yield grapes. Yes, yes. But it yielded wild grapes. The Hebrew word translated wild grapes literally means stink fruit. <laughs> Guess the translators didn't want to go there. With all the grace that God had bestowed on his people, the fruit they produced stunk to high heavens, literally. Now, what went wrong? Where was the breakdown? Verse 3 offers only two possibilities. There we read, judge between me and my vineyard. The failure lies either with the owner or the vineyard. The picture that Isaiah is painting with this song is that God has done everything, everything for his people. Grace upon grace has been bestowed upon them. And in fact, in verse 4, the owner himself invites us to find fault with him. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? The correct answer, nothing, Lord. You couldn't have done anything more gracious to them. Nothing more could have been done. There was nothing more that God could provide in their lives. Christian, think about this. Even the time, even the things that you lack in life are a gift of God's grace towards you. God knows what's best for you. And often he doesn't bring into our lives things he knows would distract our hearts from him. But we go hunting them down anyway, don't we? Christian, God is not holding back on his grace towards you. All the grace you need, he has for you. Now, the key word in the first section appears next in verse 4. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Why? Why are we not more fruitful? Is it God's fault? No. But we make all kinds of excuses. Think about it. We say to ourselves, why am I not more fruitful? Well, if I just had a better job... I just had a better husband or a better wife. If I only had parents who let me do what I want to do, if only I had money, then I could really live a fruitful life for the Lord. If only our church had a group that better ministered to my needs, if only our church sang hymns, if only our church sang more contemporary music, then we'd be a church we ought to be. Then we could bear pleasant fruit. Think about it. At the bottom of each of our excuses, there is an implied criticism of God, as if he hasn't already given us all that we need to live fruitfully for him. But God has given us everything. He has washed us clean in the blood of Jesus Christ, his own son. He has given us his holy word so that we may know God's heart and learn how to live in pleasing ways towards us. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He has given us new hearts that can now beat for God and for his glory. And he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. And he's promised us the day to come when we will reign with Christ upon this new heavens and new earth that God will give. My friends, we have been planted by God into this fertile soil of salvation. He has watered us with this holy word. He nourishes us with this table of grace. He shines upon us with mercy and grace. So why? 
Why on earth would we produce anything that isn't pleasing in his sight? That was what the Lord was looking for with his people back then. And that is what the Lord is looking for in his people today. Fruit of obedience that grows as a response to God's abundant, overflowing grace towards us. Each and every one of us here know this. Your life has a great purpose. To bear pleasing fruit to the glory of your Lord, who has done everything for you so that you lack no good thing. We are God's vineyard, which means we get to live and grow and prosper and bear pleasing fruit. This is, this is our identity. Let us not receive it in vain. The ancient people in Isaiah's day received it in vain, so God told them what he would do. And what will he do? Look at verses 5 and 6. And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. When the people of God take the grace of God for granted, he removes his blessing, and his people experience dryness and desolation and the trampling of foreign invaders. First, it'll be the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians. The song ends with a summary, right? Just in case you were starting to feel sorry for that vineyard and hold God in contempt for what he will do, Isaiah sings, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasing planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God lavished his people with every grace and every blessing so that they would bear pleasing fruit upon this earth. But in Isaiah's day, God looked and he saw stinking fruit. The people had received the grace of God in vain. That's the first point. We looked at God's abundant grace. He has given us everything we need to be fruitful for him. Now Isaiah turns to the people and he lists out six answers to the question, why? And it's like he's holding up six clusters of stinking fruit. And each cluster begins with the word, woe. First, we get two woes, and they're followed by two therefores, and then four woes followed by two therefores. Let's look at the fruit we tend to bear. Woe is a haunting word. It speaks of sorrow, regret, and righteous anger. In the very next chapter, which we're going to look at next week, Isaiah is brought into heaven. He says what? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst an unclean people. The first woe exposes our greed and covetedness. Woe to those who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. That's not much. And a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. That's not much either. Here the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting squeezed out. 
Now, in God's law, he had a provisions that meant that in order to prevent uh, a permanent underclass among his people, every 49 years in what's called the year of Jubilee, all lands and all buildings were returned to the original family. Now, God is not against wealth, but Jesus knows how quickly our hearts can be filled with dreams of financial prosperity. Our love of wealth and the elevated status and comfort it brings us can cause our fruit to stink. The second woe exposes a lack of spiritual perception, verse 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, and they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Instead of living each day to their fullest, to the glory of God, people chase after sensory pleasures like strong drink and late-night entertainment. Isaiah is condemning Judah's unreasoning passion for one thrill after another. And the problem with living this way is what? Is that it tends to dull one's spiritual perception. You become spiritually blind to the work of the Holy Spirit in your midst. That's what Isaiah points at in verse 12. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Perhaps Paul's words in Ephesians 5 come to mind where he says, And do not get drunk on wine, for this is debauchery, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. God's grace towards us comes with power when we drink deep, deep gulps of the Spirit of God. A carefree, sensual, indulgent lifestyle dulls your spiritual perception. But where the Spirit dwells, there is greater and greater spiritual sight. Woe to those who dull their spiritual perception. Isaiah follows these first two woes with two therefores. The first therefore draws the irony that all of their drinking and excesses actually leads to hunger and thirst. Verse 13, therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. The second therefore describes how the party is now over. Ironically, the land grabbers will be buried in the land as Sheol, that's the abode of the dead, is enlarged just as they once enlarged their lands. Justice will come upon a land of injustice and God will be exalted for doing this very thing, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her Man is humbled. Remember, that, that means to be humiliated in the Hebrew. Man is humiliated, and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. third woe. Ray Ortland Jr. states that the third cluster of wild grapes presents a metaphor so absurd that it must be true. Isaiah wants us, listen, Isaiah wants us to picture 
people, not horses, not oxen, people harnessed to a heavy wagon and pulling it along or drawing it, straining with all their mights. Here we go, verse 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let him come that we may know it. Isaiah shows what we must know is true, that sin is a heavy burden and that sin is deceitful. Woe to those who draw or pull iniquity with cords of what? Falsehood. Sin lies to us. Sin promises us that it will make our lives better, but sin cannot deliver on what it promises. Ortland asks, so why don't we throw off the harnesses and run free? Because we're deceived, doubly so. For even as we cling to our favorite sins, so heavy, but so dear to us, we also wonder, I'm so bored. I'm so disappointed. Why isn't God more real to me? That is the condition of the human heart that Isaiah poetically describes. And in verse 19, we see how these very people taunt God for his failure to act, right? Where is God? Let him be quick. Come on. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Ha, ha, ha. We thought so. Humanity clings to its favorite sins, and because God has not struck us down yet, we spike the football and taunt the crowd. Which is why, listen, the gospel itself, the gospel alone is so liberating. In John 8, Jesus presents the gospel as a call to be set free from our slavery to sin. Here's what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What sins are you laboring to pull in that cart behind you? The ones you feel okay with because God has not struck you down for them. Please see that Jesus' desire is to truly set you free from all of it. The fourth cluster of stink fruit is a perverted morality. Look at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah is depicting a culture where the moral code is flipped, completely reversed. Evil is said to be good and good is said to be evil. And this is very much like the culture we see today. Greed is good. Sex outside marriage, hey, that's good. Abortion isn't the killing of an innocent life. It's, it's reproductive health care. Homosexuality isn't a sin. It's, it's something to take pride in. The lottery doesn't steal from the poor. It pays for a better education. We live in a world that has lost its vision and lost its taste. And listen, before we're so critical of others... Before Christ became real to us, that was how we lived too. 
And can you see how impossible it is to obey God's word when we call good evil and evil good? You can't do it. But the gospel invites us to have our taste buds and our eyeballs recalibrated. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The fifth cluster of grapes gone wild reveals a spirit of arrogance. It is our deep-seated lust for autonomy, right? To live as islands unto ourselves. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. A number of years ago, someone relayed a story to me that illustrates this kind of arrogance that we tend to suffer from. This person was walking with some friends on Townline Road to Townline Barbecue because the parking lot was full and everyone was parking on Townline like for a couple hundred yards. It was really packed that day. And as they're walking up, they saw this deer down the road a ways and they're, oh, it's just standing in the middle of the road. And along comes a speeding Porsche and the people wave frantically, slow down, slow down. The man just flips him the bird. And then he crashes into the deer, kills the deer, destroys his Porsche. Being wise in our own eyes, we all tend to suffer from it. When we are wise in our own eyes, listen, the grace of God is the last thing we crave. We begin crafting all kinds of plausible arguments so that we can keep on producing that stinking fruit. The sixth and the last cluster of wild grapes reveal a grace-resistant inner life. Verses 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and drinking strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. On the one hand, Isaiah laments the, cor the corruption of society's elite. And on the other hand, he laments the breakdown of social justice. For you see, the two go together, do they not? Think it through. Personal excess cannot remain a merely private matter with no impact on others. Ortland says there's a reason why people binge on escapism. They are medicating their despair. And how can self-induced delirium sustain social justice? It can't. Social justice thrives when people have a sense of God that they embrace as a meaningful whole to the benefit of all around. And he's right. We live in an age where people say, to each his own, what does it really matter how someone else lives as long as they don't hurt anyone? This section of four woes is followed by two more therefores. We'll cover them, cover them quickly and draw some conclusions. First, verse 24, therefore, as the tongue of the fire devours the stubble and as the grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will go up like dust. For what? For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. God delighted in his pleasant planting, verse 7, right? But they did not delight in the Lord. Now we must be careful, my friends. For when our delight dies, 
Then despising takes over, and then judgment descends. The second, therefore, reveals the form of judgment to come upon them. The army of Assyria will attack. But notice this. It is God who controls the chess pieces. All God needs to do is whistle. And then the king of Assyria launches his troops into the promised land. Verses 25 through 30. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his right hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked. And their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. And look now how prepared for battle they are. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken, their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey, they carried it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. My friends, think this through. What began as a sweet-sounding love song at the beginning, right? Builds into a thundering climax with the Assyrian hordes overrunning God's people, which and eventually happens. Darkness descends, the lights turn off, for they've received the grace of God in vain. This morning we've seen that we too have a tendency to desire God's acceptance, but not his transformation. We've looked at how we can take God's grace for granted, now think it through. None of us blatantly states, all my sins are forgiven in Christ, so I'm going to allow myself to be tricked by the lies of sin. <clears throat> right? We don't consciously wake up thinking, today I'm going to take God's grace for granted and not live in humble obedience. Which is why it's so important that Isaiah's words speak to us today. And as a church, we cannot simply think that there is nothing in our midst that offends God. So we must always be asking ourselves, have I become blind to some sin in my life? In what ways do I want God's acceptance, but not his transformation? Am I in any way taking the grace of God for granted? And we acknowledge this morning that we often believe the lies we tell ourselves. We can think that the sin that still remains in us, that they're okay because, well, we've got Jesus. Instead, let us have the mind of Christ when it comes to our sin. May we see our petty sin, how the Lord sees it, like a giant cart of sin that we're pulling and drawing behind us with a cart rope. Let us see that we need to be set free. Only in Jesus is there true freedom from sin. 
And, and my friends, this is a gift of God's grace. We simply have to open it by faith. Which is why, this is why we realize that God's grace isn't just for the day we came to believe in him. It is for every day. We are saved by grace, and we live by this very same grace. And this way, what? God gets the glory for all the fruit he produces in us. When John the Baptist was on the earth, he showed us how we are to receive grace, but not in vain. He said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Daily repentance and daily grace from God is what produces pleasing fruit in our lives. Which is why when God plants you in his soil of grace, he looks for fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But as Ortland states, the truth is, none of us receives the grace of God with full hearts. I don't, do you? That's why the final answer to all our failure is the one who said, I am the true vine. When Jesus said that, he meant, I am replacing all human failure, including yours. I am the one who truly bears pleasing fruit for God. Without me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you will bear fruit that lasts. So my friends, don't rely on your relationship with Jesus to explain away your fruitlessness. Abide in Christ. Take refuge in him. And look at your fruit, the results, and ask yourself about your relationship with Jesus. Are you abiding in him? Are you really what you think you are? And remember that this same Jesus who welcomes us to draw near to him so that his life flows into our lives, this very Jesus says that you will bear fruit. This is his promise to us. When we abide in him, we cannot help but bear fruit. When we live this way, with daily drawing near to Jesus, the true vine, with him searching us and challenging us and leading us into deep repentance, with him giving us all that we need to live in obedience, this is the good life that our new birth is meant to experience. So let us not receive the grace of God in vain, but let us abide in the Son of God and bear fruit. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray. Woe is us, were it not for you, Jesus. We would all be scattered and parched and dry and weary, were it not for you coming and being the faithful, fruitful one on our behalf and dying in our stead. 
so that your life becomes our life, so that we may draw near to you in faith, in devotion. We do that right now. And as we come to this table, we do so with great delight, knowing that, that you feed us, that you nourish us as your, as your dearly bought sheep. So, Lord Jesus, have your way with us that we may abide in you and bear fruit, we pray. Amen.